So we're going to talk tonight about um, bringing mindful attention to our emotional world and um, states of mind that we might not uh, link as emotions, but they're still a part of our internal world. So the ability to focus, for example, we would call a, a mental quality, and it may not have an emotional tone to it. So there are many ways that we, um, we change within mentally and emotionally, moment by moment. We're rarely static, we're rarely just in one frame of heart or one frame of mind. It's all very changeable, very dynamic. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the tradition here at Spirit Rock, in this Buddhist tradition, and some of the ways that people train in mindfulness to become more emotionally aware, mentally aware, and why we would do that. Um, but a few things to say off the, just to start with, that um, I was noticing that um, Matthew Brenselver was here recently and he spent the whole time just talking about what it's like to be mindful of anger. So it was a recent talk, I think it was in June. Uh, any of you were here for that? Yeah. yeah, so if you guys come, if you folks come uh, regularly. He, so he spent one time on just one, one emotion and what that's like. And I'm going to talk a little more broadly because there are so many. I mean, there's fear, there's joy, there's contentment, there's uh, the creative mind, there's a peaceful heart, there's the suspicious mind and heart. There's so many qualities and they're happening to all of us, but uh, we have different capacities of being aware that they're happening while they're happening. And yet they're, um, they're, they're greatly influential or what our experience is in, at that time. So bringing up our capacity to know what's happening while it's happening. So that's the, uh, that's the trajectory. But to begin with, I wanted to start with something that, <clears throat> um, I'm not sure if the, I don't know if this is gonna work as, a, as an image for you all, but it did for me. It probably speaks of my generation and speaks a little bit to um, my earlier life as a, molecular biophysicist. Um, how many of uh, know the first Star Trek series with uh, Spock and Kirk? How many of you don't know that series? Never watched it? <laughs> okay, well. So there's this character, Spock, and he's from another planet called Vulcan. And um, their emotions got so out of hand on the planet Vulcan that they almost killed each other to extinction. There are just constant war. And so to keep themselves alive, they suppressed all their emotional life. Children were still born with it. They didn't get, the, didn't get out of their DNA, but they raised them to be uh, scientific and logical. So by the time they were adults, they had learned to really suppress all emotion. Um, and that kept them alive at that time. So that's the planet that this character is from. My problem is he's half human and half Vulcan. So it's harder for him to suppress this emotional world. But it's one of his goals, his personal goals, is to keep suppressing this, this human side of him because of the trouble that it causes. And he's paired with Captain Kirk, who is very much from the gut and has lots of emotion and lots of joy and lots of intuition. His intuition comes from the fact that he's a uh, emotionally complex, um, unbridled being. <laughs> So anyways, it's an interesting pairing. There's a second generation of Star Trek, 
and there's this character called Data. Now, see, I'm getting to know both of these generations to kind of get this analogy, but Data is actually, um, he's an Android, he's a computer. So he has, he has all the logic, you know, this incredible logic, but he has no emotional capacity. So he's spending his entire life arc trying to develop insight into this realm of human emotion. And he sees it as a lack that he doesn't have it because there's a whole side of being human that he'll never understand. And so you have these two characters split on these two Star Trek. Um, so again, very kind of nerdy <laughs> uh, to have really understood, really, really, really understood these two characters. <clears throat> but they meet once. They meet, they have a way of meeting this one character, Spock, lives for a long time and he meets the second generation Star Trek people and he and Data meet and they look at each other with envy. And so Spock looks like, you know, you have the, the perfect logical mind and you've been able to suppress all these emotions. And Data looks back and is like, ah, oh, you have this human side. And it was really poignant, like, <laughs> at least it was to me, to see that um, <laughs> back when I was playing a lot of chess and studying a lot of science and uh, really into the perfections of mathematics and boiling everything down to its chemical formula and how clean that all was, that there really was a, a question in my mind if, uh, if emotions were worth it. Because as beautiful as they can be, they can also be quite savage. <laughs> And uh, they, they're, it's very hard to have them and not let them uh, run away. Um, so you can, it's hard to just get the good. It's hard just the good side of having an emotional world. And that's really what this training, this Buddhist training, this mindfulness training, actually invites us to do. There is a way through training so that you do get more and more of the beautiful side of having this uh, emotional capacity. And you do have a skillful way of untangling the uh, more destructive emotions. So that's very, it's been a part of this tradition from the beginning. Um, I was reading a, um, a journal in psychology today on what happens if you suppress emotions versus really feel them and try to figure them out and then see if changes need to be made, what changes could be skillful, but having to feel them first before you suppress them. And now there's mounting evidence that uh, if you just suppress your emotional world because it's too complicated, first you cannot just suppress uh, unpleasant emotions. You can't just suppress fear. You can't just suppress anger. Once you suppress part of your emotional world, you end up suppressing all of your emotional world. And then having to live in this counterfeit up at the top, this very narrow range up at the top. So it's just not possible. For some reason, we don't have that capacity to only suppress what uh, we find challenging, anger, fear, grief, anxiety. So uh, that's one lack of doing the suppression model. And then there's all these complications that develop, all this stress that comes. Um, your body begins to break down when you're, you, you still feel the emotion, but you're, you're locking it down. You're doing your best not to let it have an influence over you. And in that kind of combative relationship to harmful emotions, um, you develop uh, a lot of internal stress. It's not a good long-term strategy, and there's mounting evidence of that biologically and psycholo um, psychologically. 
the other way of just sort of letting them um, being very expressive, um, in some ways you don't get the ulcers maybe because you're not holding in that tension, but they can get pretty out of hand. I mean, the, the, the wars that are raging seem to be emotions that cannot be checked. And once that gets rolling, they tend, oh, I get angry at you, and then you get angry at me. I, it's not like my anger at you makes you like me better and do what I want. You tend to get resistant to me, which makes me even more angry. And so there's a way that our anger or fear or these negative emotions will feed upon each other. So <clears throat> this brings in a third way between expression and suppression is being with the emotions while they're arising and building capacity to let the emotions be there and maybe guide and direct them, but not try to suppress them or let them explode out. And most of us actually are doing that to some degree, but there's usually a range, an emotional range that we don't know how to be with. And so it either explodes or it ends up being suppressed. So we have some struggle. Almost everybody in the room has some struggle on a range of emotion. We don't like that expression, so we suppress it and then we deal with the tension otherwise. Many of my uh, family members at the end of a week-long family vacation together are exhausted because of how much they've had to suppress. <laughs> in order to stay in the comfort zone, uh, there's just old injuries and old patterns and everybody's doing their best, but it's a, it can be exhausting, that suppression model. Um, but we still care for each other, so we, we keep coming back. But there's a cost of doing the suppression. So then we have to be with emotion as it comes up. In this tradition, this Theravadan Buddhist tradition of Spirit Rock, we develop mindfulness, and mindfulness is the ability to be with something and let it unfold on its own without intervening, at least temporarily. So being with sounds, getting to know them, not adding a lot of sound, not adding a lot of stories to the sounds, but just being with the sounds, the simple sounds, being with the body sensations, being with thoughts, being with whatever's arising in the present moment and building our capacity to be with that before boredom or reactivity or distraction take over. So that's a lot of the development of mindfulness. But then we turn that ability to be present, to be intimate with our world in the direction of what cultivates deeper happiness, deeper relief, and what cultivates our stress so we understand both of those better. So we're employing mindfulness in specific areas um, that bring about our happiness and our welfare. In the classic teachings of mindfulness, there are four basic places we bring our attention. One whole place we bring our attention is just what it's like to have a human body. The physical sensations, this breath, the anatomy of the body, getting to know your body as, uh, as its sort of biological capacities, bones and flesh and organs and eyes, and just getting to know this, getting to know the lifespan of a body and the fact that bodies age, um, and the aging process often leads to a passing away process. So the honesty, <laughs> the honesty of what it's like to be in one of these bodies, and not hoping that there's some other way <laughs> out of the typical human experience. 
So that's one of the foundations, developing intimacy with this body. The second foundation of mindfulness is building our capacity to be, to be with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences and just watch how much they change and watch our reactivity towards pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experiences and developing a capacity to uncouple our contentment and well-being from the fact that pleasant experiences happen, unpleasant experiences happen, neutral experiences happen. That uncoupling doesn't mean we go numb to them. You actually feel them, but you lower your reactivity to the fact that unpleasant experiences are happening. That's a whole development in mindfulness. Again, to reduce suffering and agitation, to increase happiness and welfare, is not to, how do I get more pleasant experiences, but how do I not suffer when unpleasant experiences happen? How do I not get uh, obsessed and a little bit anxious around the pleasant experiences, trying to get more out of them? But how can I let them come and go as they will? See if I can bring a few more pleasant experiences. See if I can modify unpleasant experiences, but not get obsessed with that strategy. So that's a whole second development of mindfulness. I'm kind of galloping through these first two. <laughs> and then we come to the third and the fourth way of using mindfulness. And they are in working with the heart and the mind. Because it's really these qualities of heart and mind that lend so much to our welfare on the one hand, or get, so, get us so drawn into really tight and prolonged suffering on the other. So um, again, not just to suppress these things because they're powerful or be swept away by them, but how do we drop in to be mindful of emotions as they come and go, or mental states as they come and go. Well, it's a training, like anything, like piano scale, or doing uh, scales on a piano, or doing the guitar. <laughs> you, uh, you practice it. So a lot of the uh, guided meditation was invitations to practice, what's happening for me now? What's happening for me now? Okay, I've identified some calm, some happiness. Okay, great, that's a starting point. Now, what are those qualities like while they happen? Hmm, sort of a lightness to the happiness, I like that. Sort of a relief from the calm. Oh, I like that too, that's nice. Okay, now keep watching it, and then see where it goes and see if it changes, and eventually it will change. So you have to start asking that question to even guide your attention to be in contact with this field and then see what the field is like, and then see how it changes over time. This is the third foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation of mindfulness is just getting to know how your heart and mind express themselves. What are the qualities? What's the quality? What's it like when your mind is easily focused? Or if it's caffeine assisted, what's that like? You, the caffeine comes into your blood and then not so distracted, you're kind of pinpoint. Or too much caffeine, caffeine and you can't pinpoint anymore, it's all restless. You can watch that, you can experience your own mind going through that transition. What's it like when um, you hold somebody that you love and you, feel the, and you feel that connection? Often we're so in the experience, we're not asking the question of what it feels like. We're just in the experience. But through mindfulness, you can begin to enjoy what is it like to have my heart in this state, to have my mind in this state. 
I remember on the, one of my first retreats, they kept talking about it, but I couldn't do it because it was a little ephemeral. It's like, uh, I don't know what this is. Um, or I'd be so happy I wouldn't be able to stay with it. They're too, too bubbly. Or so irritated. It's like, yeah, this is irritation, but really that person, da, 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 da. I couldn't stay with it because I'd be so irritated. I'd really want to be in the story and how I was going to, you know, get things right. Or I'd be so happy. I was like, why would I sit here and say happy and enjoy? I'd just be it. I don't want to know it. I just want to be it. But then it would change and I'm kind of, have to go on to whatever came next. So I remember, I was like, okay, it's a training, and I'll just do it. Okay, here I am. What mood am I in? I don't know. What mood am I in? What mood am I in? Like, okay, I'm fairly calm. So I just had to begin like that, just sitting there in the middle of me, asking, what mood am I in? What state of mind am I in? And I got distracted and could do it for a little while, and then went on and did walking meditation and breathing meditation. And later on, asked again, what mood am I in? And it had changed. And I hadn't noticed that it had changed, but now something else was happening. And slowly over time, I began to know how my, uh, the expression of my heart and the expression of my mind, and then seeing how little things would have this big impact. So someone we'd, I'd be with my friends and we kind of poking fun at each other and the happiness would go up, the joy would go up, we'd poke fun at each other, happiness and joy, we'd poke fun at each other, and someone would go down. <laughs> someone would take one joke too many, but I wouldn't catch it. So I'm still poking fun, poking fun, the person's sort of like not enjoying it anymore, but I'm enjoying it. And then, <laughs> then I inherit this whole problem with this person because I wasn't really tracking. I wasn't really tracking that the field had changed. The sense of the joy was not shared anymore, but I was sort of taken up by it. So then tracking what was happening for me, for the people around me, became really interesting, really interesting to kind of feel into what emotional state are other people in? What emotional state am I in? What emotional states are we sharing? Or are we on two different channels, two different levels? Interesting. So it became as accessible, again with practice, as it is to feel my body or to feel a breath to take interest in the change in the emotional world, the change in the mental world, and to see that, and it, it, it has such a big influence over how you are experiencing your life in that moment. But many of us actually don't know what's happening to us. We're like uh, kids when you say, oh, you look tired, and the kids are rubbing their eyes and they're yawning. It's like, I'm not tired, I'm not tired. And I, my dad has, um, he remarried and has these little kids. And around bedtime, this one, my little sister gets frantic to have as much joy and to touch all of her toys. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I've got <laughs> She's just sitting there a little bit bored, but then she realizes it's her bedtime. And she goes frantic of trying to like get the joy because she's gonna, and then there's this like meltdown and, and she's like snoring like 10 minutes later, but she passes through this thing. Well, you know, you can forgive her because she's young, but most of us are like that. Most of us like that. It's like someone, if someone courageous enough to say, Temple, you're really angry right now. Because <laughs> they might go, I am not. Or like, why are you saying that? But it's like, uh, am I? Is that true? Wow, it's so unpleasant. It's so unpleasant. I don't want to be with this. I'd rather lash it out or get rid of it somehow. But what's it like to be in it? Especially if other people are telling you <laughs> that you're in that state. They can sense that you're in that state if they're accurate. The reason we want to catch this is that <clears throat> um, emotions 
uh, are, are very powerful and the beautiful ones are priceless. The beautiful ones are so incredibly um, worth it. The ones that are connective, the one like uh, the oceanic sense of well-being, where when we practice this particular tradition and we get a greater and greater sense of well-being, it's a very visceral, in the body, open-hearted sense of well-being. So if you haven't made contact with your body, if you haven't made contact with your emotional world, if you haven't opened that up yet, there's a way that the freedom you have ends up being very mental, very kind of like, I see things clearly, but I'm not that engaged with the world. You have to be able to feel the world and feel free within the world, not be too caught up in what's happening, but not because you've cut the world off, but you feel it and you've taken out your reactivity you can see the world, have compassion for the world, for the way it is. It's actually a very feeling state, the fully awakened state. And I didn't get that when I was younger. I really hoped that there was a way to kind of spock my way out of all the chaos. And uh, that really backfired. That was not a good strategy. So later in life, luckily, it's coming back in, uh, feeling this body, and being willing to, to be in these difficult emotions. When I was younger, <clears throat> I often had this uh, tremendous sense of loneliness and feeling really cut off, and then it would pass, and I'd be so relieved to feel like I was back among people and feeling connected, but then every now and then I would feel really cut off, and um, when that would happen, I would pretty much just be suffering in it. But then I began to realize, okay, this is temporary, there's this sense of loneliness, and what is it? People sing about it, other people talk about it. No, it's happening to me. What is this loneliness? And one time I was canoeing up in Canada, and way, way out there um, at night, just as the sun goes down, um, the loons start calling to each other. And if you've ever heard a loon call, most of, it would be, most of us would be recorded, but uh, even a live loon call, even a recorded one, but if you hear a live one, one loon call calling to the other, it's heartbreaking. It's the most beautiful sense of like, where are you? And they sort of call out. And this other loon, like a two miles away, will call, I'm over here and I miss you. <laughs> I mean, I probably am anthropomorphizing a little bit, but they only do it when they're alone. They never do it together. And they always do it at night. And then they fly to find each other. But it's beautiful. And when I heard the loon, when I heard another being, um, expressed that, I felt reunited. I felt connected again because I wasn't the only one feeling it. And that same sense of loneliness was actually a very tender reconnection back into the feeling of the feeling world. Does that make sense? So the loneliness that was imprisoning, when I could actually drop in and feel it, it actually connected me because it's a very common um, not even human experience, mammal experience, not even mammals, the, the loons are feeling it, so it includes birds. Do you know the, the poet David White? Um, <clears throat> he has this beautiful story poem um, where he said, as far as he knows, we're the only animals who suffer this sense of um, banishment, the sense of being cut off from our herd or our tribe, and we do it a lot. And so we can feel a thousand miles away from feeling in, in communion with the others around us. It's very painful. He said, rather than trying to traverse that big sense of cutoff so you can get back in with people, 
It's actually the willingness to feel that sense of cut off and feel the vulnerability of feeling cut off. And in that, you tap into such a deeply human experience that you've dropped in and felt um, not the surface level of being human, but actually something quite profound, what it's like to have a heart that tender. And if you can withstand it, being that tender with yourself, you feel more than reconnected. You feel like you've joined the soul of humanity by feeling that deeply. So that's one example, the feeling of cutting off and how hard it is to feel it. And we're afraid that if we feel it, we'll die within it. And yet if we can open up to it, when we actually drop into a mindful, I don't need to solve this, I'm just gonna be in it, that that alone sometimes can reunite you the mindfulness that reunites you back into a feeling world, into realm of your heart, realm of your body, the realm of being connected with others. But again, these, are, these can be difficult places to want to be. It's sometimes hard to be with our pleasant experiences because we just want to have them. We don't want to, we don't want to become too aware of them. We just kind of like being in them. But it's worth it. It's worth it to be in them because the positive ones tend to flourish by being aware that they're happening. And the ones that are painful tend to resolve when we can accept them, be with them, and relax into them. The tension within them tends to let go when we have the courage to meet them. This happened to me when I was practicing in Burma. Um, I had a, a string of bad experiences. I sprained both my ankles, very painful. I was in Burma, I was, I was afraid that um, I might have broken my bones and I was afraid they wouldn't heal well in Burma. And so I was getting kind of wrapped up in this drama of how do I get out of here and should I get out of here and try to calm myself down. And then <clears throat> another ordeal happened trying to get from one monastery to another and I went in this truck that had um, no heat shield between the engine and the passenger compartment. And so my feet were getting this blast of hot air around them while they were swelling up. And it's just like, oh, the injustice, the injustice. Is anybody watching this? This is ridiculous. And I went to the city monastery and I was laying there in a room that faced the south and they had this dark wood wall. And it got to be about 120 degrees in this room. And it was hot and I was frustrated and my legs hurt, my ankles hurt. and. I just like, I gotta get out of this country. I don't think this is good for me. I was like, no, that's just fear. I was trying to stay calm. And then this young monk ran up and down the hallway, banging on everybody's doors. And everybody was laughing. They thought it was really cute, so they were encouraging it. But he's just rattling. And I was just barely being able to like hold the experience. But I, I was angry, but I wasn't really willing to be angry. But there's a lot of anger and frustration coming up, but I was like not letting it take over because I didn't want it to sweep over me. At some point, I couldn't take it anymore. It was actually the crows came and they landed on the metal roof. <laughs> they would land on the metal roof and they would slide down with their claws on the metal roof. Just stop at the edge and then let out this blood-curdling caw. <laughs> then fly off and repeat it. And so I was cooking in this, I was cooking in this. And uh, finally the, the volcano blew. And it just blew. I was just, I was just flooded with anger. Flood of anger. I'd been resisting probably for my whole life, but I was in this flood of anger. I didn't scream out and beat the sheets, but I was just 
raging and like it was just too much and so all this rage came out and I, I was cooking in it and I'd been practicing enough at that point to have a glimmer of consciousness riding this volcanic eruption in the middle of all this rage and <clears throat> it didn't kill me I didn't take take it out on anybody I didn't go unconscious in it but it, it lasted for a while just to sort of like this is unbearable and it was unbearable. It was really difficult. And it passed. It took time and it passed and it relieved. And it was the first glimmer of being, being very intimately in something and being awake within it as opposed to like, oh, I see you sadness or, oh yeah, this is grief over here. Or, hmm, I think there's some fear over here. But letting it actually get as big as it wanted to be and staying conscious within it. And we all have a range that we can do that. That's the invitation with mindfulness. I wanted to um, read you from this, uh, read to you from this, this sutta, this um, writing on this, uh, this um, text, that mindfulness is, is often uh, trained from this text. So the third foundation and how, and how does one in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind? Here she knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. He knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be a mind without anger. She knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. And that's it. That's enough of a training. So you don't then do something about it. It's just, how many of you are feeling anger right now? You can be honest. Okay, couple of people. Hey, interesting, couple of people. So you get to explore what that's like as a direct experience. Now the rest of you might have little to know to like, yeah, it's actually really gone. So you know that. You can be mindfulness of the fact that anger isn't happening. And you can be mindful of the fact that anger is happening. And in this training suggestion, that's enough. Because if we go in too quickly to solve it, if we go in too quickly to change it, chances are we're clinging to a preference that had not be there. And that clinging will actually be frustrating because we can't always fight our way out of these experiences. We sometimes have to know how to be with them and learn about them. You learn about fear within fear. You learn about grief from within grief. You learn about uh, sleepiness and tiredness from within the experience. And that takes some courage while it's happening to say, what is happening now and can I be with it? Hmm, what words would I use for this? quality of heart and mind. And you touch it, it might be overwhelming. And so you give yourself a place to go, be with your breath, go outside, take in colors, connect with friends if it's really overwhelming. But then see if you can come back and again, deepen your relationship to whatever that experience is, knowing your emotions from within them. That's a whole beautiful foundation, a whole beautiful development of mindfulness. How not to suffer even though fear has arisen, how not to suffer even though anger has arisen. Can you know it from within it? 
know the story that it tells, know the way that it filters the world around you. And then it dissipates and with it goes all the perspectives that were so hardened when that emotion were there, was there. You fall in love with somebody, they can do no wrong, they're beautiful, you're so blessed. Then that bubble evolves <laughs> and they're more complex than that. And then you begin to see that, oh, I was in, a, I was in a, that honeymoon bubble and it's very beautiful, but it's not the full story. Most people are much more complex than that. And can I not be sad about that? Well, that's what that bubble's like. You're in the honeymoon bubble, can I have perspective? And then things evolve and you find out that people are more complex than that and you have room for that. You have room for how complex you are, they are, how complex your relationship is. But with mindfulness, being in the experience, knowing it from within the experience. Then when you get to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, then you actually know how to make skillful interventions because you've been in it. If you touch anger and go, you don't really know anger, so you don't know how to solve it. You made me angry, so you have to do something different Then I won't have to feel angry again. Well, now you're making me angry, now you have to do something different. I'm just touching my anger, and my anger says you're the problem. So I'm not actually getting into the roots of my anger, I'm just going very quickly to try to get rid of it, and it's always blaming something but it really blames the right thing. It really lets you know what's touch, where is this anger coming from? So because of the third foundation of mindfulness, we get to know these states as they come and go without reactivity. You learn about them. And then from that greater intimacy, you can see what's fueling your fear. Where's all this joy coming from? Why do I feel so incredibly content right now? You know that from within the experience. And then you know how to cultivate beautiful experiences. And you know how to skillfully begin to dismantle and uh, let go of unpleasant experiences. That actually leads to greater and greater happiness. That leads to a greater uh, expression of the beautiful states. Because you know how to cultivate them by being in them. And you know how to truly uh, let go of whatever is fueling that anger. You know how to um, be aware of what part of the anger you do need to address and what part is extra. So you can let go of the extra, you can go down and maybe make a better agreement with people you're living with or neighbors or whatever, maybe fueling the anger. So you have to know it from within it to really solve it. And that's where we get into the language in the fourth foundation Here's the language of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. If sensual craving is present in him, he knows there is sensual craving in me. If sensual craving is not present in him, he knows there is no sensual craving in me. And he knows how unarisen sensual craving can arise. So you've learned from your system, where did this really come up? Where did this craving come from? It wasn't there, it was there. And I watched that, what really had it come up? I know how sensual craving can be, rem be removed once it has arisen, and I know how future cravings can be avoided. That's if they're unpleasant uh, emotional or mental states. If joy 
is present in her. She knows there's joy in me. If joy is not present in her, she knows there's no joy in me. She knows how unarisen joy can arise. I know what brings me joy. And it's different from for me than you, than you. It's different. I know what brings my joy around. And I keep learning new things that bring my joy around. And I know how it can be strengthened to perfection because I see it, I know it so well, I can see I'm actually gaining ground and having more and more joy present in my life because I've been awake within the state as opposed to just letting it happen on its own. That's about as much as I wanted to describe in this format of just sort of um, uh, this, my, this part of talking. So I thought I would go and see if there are any questions you have on this topic. It might be interesting to have a little more dialogue as we go through it. Anybody have a question or comment they want to make? I hope I can phrase this because <laughs> I tried to write notes. And when you say, if joy is present in her and she knows there is joy is present. Um, I guess I, I couldn't keep up with what you were saying in the back. Okay. <laughs> Anybody okay. else feel that way? So if joy is present in her, she knows there's joy in me. If joy is not present in her, she knows there's no, no joy present in me. She knows how the unarisen joy can arise. <laughs> this is about just a practitioner. This is somebody who is working with um, mindfulness of their emotions. So just some person who's taking up mindfulness practice. And she's aware there's joy present in me. So if as this woman is practicing, she becomes aware, oh, there's joy present in me. And then with mindfulness, she realizes later on, oh, actually, there's no joy present in me. Knowing joy better and better, she sees, oh, under these conditions, joy arises and flourishes. Oh, this is how I support joy. Thank you. Yeah. It almost seems like you do need to suffer somewhat when you go in to an emotion that you don't really want to have in order to come out of it. And so that the suffering or the extreme uh, intensity of it, you're more and more comfortable with. So to not suffer, in other words, you suffer a bit for later on <laughs> not to suffer. Um, well, it's an interesting way of framing it. Chances are you're suffering already because something has arisen that you don't want to experience. And one habit is to just try to put your attention elsewhere and suppress what's happening, hoping it will go away. So there's already some tension. But it's true, as you go from you're putting your attention elsewhere and running from the experience, or heavily trying to modify it, turning your attention towards it, you're facing the, the layer of the experience 
that's um, um, that you don't want to experience. You're you're facing some part of it, and usually that turning towards it is unpleasant. You go from not knowing, knowing but trying not to know, towards knowing it. But then, as you pass through that skillfully, right. it, the the dissonance can break apart, and really, there's an underlying experience. That underlying experience is often um, relieving to know. So, because you've allowed yourself to stay with it, yeah, and then you can see it for what it is, yeah, and then next time it won't be quite so bad. Yeah, and there's the parallel. When we do that with physical pain, we do the same thing in this tradition. I might have, um, I broke my wrist in about, in about nine months ago. And sometimes it's painful, and I don't like feeling the pain, so I just try to like let my wrist rest, and I try to not put my attention on it. But sometimes that doesn't work, because I've tweaked it, and it's throbbing, and it's a little bit painful. So then I get a little bit frustrated, like, wow, this wrist is taking so long to heal, and da-da-da-da-da. So I'm kind of suffering. The wrist is in pain, and I'm kind of suffering. I was trying not to suffer by pretending it wasn't in pain. Turn my attention towards the wrist, and I come into this sort of, like, frustration layer. Then I realize how unproductive that is. It's broken. It's healing. My, my disappointment with it, just the suffering on top of that. I let that go, and I come back, and I can actually begin to hold it. And it's painful, but I'm not suffering. It's just, oh yeah, it's broken, and it takes time to heal. And wrists take a long time to heal. So you do have to kind of turn, the t turning t against an old habit towards something that's uncomfortable is a new possibility. And that's encouraged in this tradition to skillfully do that, to the degree that we're able to. And sometimes you have to come at it in steps then you come back and finally you can hold it. Almost anything you can be with below that is actually quite beautiful. I can't be angry in an area I don't really care about something. And so underneath the anger is usually a very tender heart that's having a hard time bearing what I'm experiencing. And so then I can't take it anymore and I get angry. This has to stop. But below the anger is often tenderness but I can't bear it. It's so, it's so deep, the tenderness, that I have this layer of anger on top of it. So I turn into the anger, which is unpleasant, and I sit with it, and I feel the tension of it. And if I can be with it, I can say, where is this all coming from? So-and-so said such and such. I'm like, okay, not that. Really, underneath this, why do I care so much? And if I can get at that, usually the anger melt and below that is just a very tender wish that I'm I'm okay and you're okay and the world is okay like it's just a very young wish that people didn't treat each other so badly or that life didn't have to hurt this much and I breathe there a little bit and I think yeah but it does you know it's just part of the human experience we have difficult and I can find I can hold myself hold the world with compassion instead of frustration and then that same spot becomes a spot of beauty. When you can hold the thing that was making you angry before with compassion, you get the same radiant feeling, but it radiates out into compassion and a beautiful wish, wish for justice, but not the boiling um, intolerance 
for being intimately in contact with the suffering. I used to work a lot with homeless kids up in Seattle. And sometimes you would hear what had happened to the place before they came to the shelter. And it usually was years of some suffering that they had gone through. And usually it was economic forces that strained a family that made people treat each other badly and they couldn't handle the needs of a teenager and things got really... And so I'd hear these things and I would, it would be hard to hear it. And so I would just start to get frustrated. It's like, things have got to change and we can't have this. And I would just go, I can't hear another one of these stories. Things have to change. <clears throat> but that wasn't, you know, that didn't help me. It didn't help the next kid who walked in the door, the fact that I couldn't hear their story. And so over time, I, got, I could hear their story. It was a development to be, to witness, to intimately witness that much suffering. And then when the desire to make a change came, it didn't come from intolerance on my part. It came from compassion. It really came from a sense that there's a lot of suffering out there and there are some pretty smart people who think they can actually solve it. So let's help. People have really good insight into social dynamics and social forces. And that you don't burn out on. That's a really joyous cause. So the same suffering can fuel a lifetime of service and activism. But because we don't get that right, we often hit a wall and we get frustrated and angry and bitter. And then our compassion turns into resentment. So again, underneath all these things tends to be something quite beautiful and tender. But we have to grow our capacity to be in contact with it. And the, the way we do that, often we have to pass through stages and defense mechanisms that in our heart and our mind, like anger or fear or anxiety. So, it's interesting. Um, we have one more. Just <clears throat> I used to have a big fear of um, public speaking, and <clears throat> I used to spend years anticipating certain things I might have to do publicly on stage, and sweat it out and prepare and get anxious about it and. Um, just a lot of terror. And a lot of it would be that when you sit in front of this many people, if, you're, if you don't really love yourself, anybody could say anything and it could validate this fear you have in yourself. And it's hard to manage a crowd of people. And so I was like, that's just, I would stress about that. <clears throat> so down below my anxiety about public speaking was just a tender self-evaluation that was not very strong at that point. So it was tenderness that led to the anxiety, that led to the posturing. And the posturing really was not good. Posturing up on stage just wasn't good. People could feel it. They weren't that moved. I wasn't that impressed either. So, <laughs> and so, and you could tell when somebody was posturing or when someone was actually available and when they would talk to an audience. And as I traced that down, there was this really, like I could barely stand my own contact with my own doubt in myself. And so to have that validated by anybody in the audience would be brutal. But as I did trace it down and didn't try to manage the situation, but got more mindful about um, what it was like to be that insecure and that unsure, that same place allows me not to be egoic, not to go for some image I could, pre I could present to you or present my go public speaking. It's the same tenderness that 
um, makes me a much better public speaker than I was when I was trying to mask it. And that's been true across the board for fear, for grief, for anger. All the difficult emotions have at their root something quite beautiful. It's just hard to be in contact with it, a vulnerability usually. And so then these very strange forces grow up around them to protect them. And that's one of the one of the beautiful parts of being mindful of difficult emotions is they tend to recede as you can be with them more. But then there actually is a passing through that and you find this tenderness underneath. And then you can actually grow that tenderness back out to the surface without the defense. And the same place that was causing you anxiety to begin with is actually one of the places you draw the greatest joy you know. That uh, vulnerability and the beauty of connection with other people. So um, I'm interested in more like a daily life question here. Sure. Um, so I practice daily. I sit every day. And in the past couple of weeks, and I've been on long retreat, and I've actually, this emotion or this experience that I've had, which I had this evening, in fact, was just really strong discomfort in the body. Yeah. Um, not like anything hurts, but just crawling out of my skin discomfort. And I had this on long retreat, and so it was like, okay, so I'm aware that this has happened before, and I've moved through it on long retreat. But now it's like, it's a, it's part of my daily practice, and I have a four-year-old at home, and so I don't want to bring this physical, you know, like, discomfort, and, uh, you know, there's just, it's restlessness. It feels like restlessness, maybe a tinge of anger, mm. but it's more like just, ugh, I want to just take off all my clothes because I feel hot all the time. Mm. You know, it's just like that. Mm. And so I, you know, sit and then it's like, okay, so I have that that I'm sitting with. And then so the, my meditation is just dissatisfying, right? Yeah. And <laughs> so, you know, what to do? What to do? Like, so here is daily life. You know, this is the practice. I'm committed to this practice. I hear what you're saying. I think it's beautiful. And yes, of course, the investigation, like I, I needed to hear that this evening. So thank you. Mm. Like, okay, so what is this? Where am I right now? That's, that's good to, to check out. Um, but in the busyness of life, these states of emotion, um, if unchecked, can, they, you start to, they manifest in other areas. Um, in ways that you're unconscious of. Right. And so a tip would be useful <laughs> on how to get me back to not manifesting this in, in ways that are not useful. You know? Right. Um, well, when I was with uh, Upandita, um, he would always say, more mindfulness is, needing, <laughs> is needed. Um, so that... And that was frustrating, but then I learned to actually apply it. And so, so something is happening for you. And my guess, because I know a lot of people in, in, who are waking up, one of the things that happens is that um, some very powerful layers of how we hold ourselves together, they begin to awaken and we begin to transform. And it's a very powerful transformation to go from one way of being to another. So you're at a point where something is opening up, but you're right. You have innocence around you and you have responsibilities. So then 
mindfulness comes in and wisdom comes in and say, well, I better know what's happening and make choices, make choices as wise as I can. And so investigating what's happening and from it, you're going to have perspective to then make choices by knowing it. And so um, sometimes it's, it's, I was just um, talking to a student and she was asking about reincarnation. I was like, you know, most people are just trying to get through their day. <laughs> and the Buddhism that gets you through your day is sometimes so much more pro necessary than the Buddhism that, about reincarnation. But so something is happening for you and you know it and you can feel it, which means you can do um, at least harm reduction. It's like this thing is happening. I need to take a break. I need to find ways to take breaks. I need to wait. To, I need to know how to self-manage with this level of stress with what's happening for me. Um, and mindfulness will give you a lot of information about what's happening. And then from that, you're going to learn in your system how to take a break, how to de-escalate. What's really triggering this? What, what, is, what is it really coming out of? Because often the, the thing that, that anger or fear blames is not actually it. It's trigger management, but it's not source management. Source management, you have to actually know these things inside to know where it's coming from, as opposed to just arranging the world so it doesn't trigger you into that state. So real, I mean, real practical thing, one is just, I do this a lot. I feel a mounting pressure and I can feel it. And I just stop and drop whatever I feel accumulating, not the actual child you're holding or the dishes, <laughs> put them down, but just stop and drop whatever is accumulating, this great letting go. And it's just like, and sometimes I go into the world and I call it unplugging. I unplug everybody. I unplug my mom, I unplug my dad, I unplug all my housemates, I unplug all my responsibilities, I unplug all my identities. And I just unplug and so it goes down to zero. I bring myself down to zero, which is scary. But then you're down at zero and it's like, what do I want to plug in? Okay, the first one that gets plugged in are my kids. They get plugged in. And then I have jobs and responsibilities, they get plugged in. And my aunt, she can wait, you know. <laughs> I love her, if she ever hears this talk, great. But she's in Denver and, you know, I can talk to her when I have a little more room. But I'm not going to plug in on that one. And I realize I've, I've been overcommitted. So one of the great things I do is um, exhale, inhale. Exhale out it all and then inhale in your priorities. Exhale out it all, inhale in your priorities. And when I do that, I find that the Buddhism that gets me through the day is doable, but it's usually the proliferation that makes it overwhelming. So that's the thing, like the hedge is just overgrown, the fears, it's just overwhelming. And so however you can, go down to zero and then build back up and build back up. And when I do that, I build back up and I tend to build back up well, as opposed to not being willing to go down to zero. My fears say, if you go down to zero, it all fall apart. Yeah, but we're talking like five minutes, 10 minutes. Go down to zero, exhale, and then take it back up and see what you want to take back up. You know, cut your to-do list down and say, well, what keeps my heart beating for the rest of the day? Okay, now. What keeps my kid's heart beating? Okay, now we got the important stuff. Now, what do I need to add on, add on, add on? And then 
when the anxiety comes, you're like, that's too much. I'm crossing the line of what I can handle today. And more than that, it all begins to shake and all becomes undoable. So today, for whatever reason, this gets me through the day. And many days are like that. But that's, that's the Buddhism of the here and now and applying it to the here and now. And so I love that because it's as big as 10,000 lifetimes and it goes right to this moment. What threads this needle? And I have to turn the radio off. It's just too much stimulation. I'm about to lose it with my kid. They really do need to quiet. I'm going to go walk, go to the bathroom and just shake for a second and come back out. Like some moments, just the game is that stressful. But you do that and you've, you've gone through the moment. And so you've used mindfulness in the turbulence of an overwhelming moment to know you're overwhelmed. But then within overwhelmed states, if you're familiar with them, you learn, for me, I need to lie down in my bedroom. Just I'm just going to take five minutes. And I know it's actually okay. Nothing's going to happen in those five minutes. And I let go. Now, when you get good at it, you can actually let go on the fly. And you let go sooner. I start feeling the weight of the world in my shoulders, and I let go. It's like, it's not up to me. The world's going to turn. The world's going to turn. I'm much better if I don't take on this burden, and I let go now, and then re-engage, as opposed to letting it build to completely unmanageable, and I have to do a big rehaul. I just don't do that as much anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Your question, then well, mind. Just, yeah, just a quick comment. You talked about anger, staying with anger to break through it and, and get insight. Uh, uh, grief, of course, you mentioned that that can do that too. It seems a little, uh, my experience with that is um, the deeper the grief, and maybe it's true with all these serious emotions, anger or something, the more chance for um, uh, uh, just uh, a softer heart when you go through that mindfully. So that's all. Yeah, that's, that's been my experience. Mm. Once, uh, went through a, th a three-month grieving process over the ending of a relationship, and I was shocked because I, I thought I could handle that much letting go, but I just had never been touched that deeply by that relationship. And so because the, the, I grieved for that long, there's a point where the grief let go, and now I'm actually really good friends with that person. But if I haven't grieved down to the bottom of it, I never, I couldn't be friends with her because there'd always be that piece I couldn't get down to the bottom of. And I still grieve this dog that died in college. I really fell in love with this dog. And when I really tuned to that dog, I so wish he was around. I really do. But that love for that dog could go into grief. But actually, that's one of the ways that I let go is that um, I remember that dog. And there's a way that my heart just softens. And when it softens, the world softens a little bit. And just like, come on, people, we can do it. You know, it's, we have these tender, beautiful hearts and minds. And I stand back up and I feel lighter because I remember him and other things that do that, that reconnect me to my heart. And he's so evocative for me that even 20 years after his passing, he, um, if I haven't felt my heart in a while, him or some other people usually wake me back up. I'm so grateful they do. They, they do that. Thank you all for your patience and coming out tonight and participating in the conversation and listening and your practice. So thank you all very much and happy travels.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.